there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about how you might combine your interest in the music industry and your interest in public affairs or public service into a meaningful career, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has served as chief spokesman for a whole bunch of high-profile elected and appointed officials, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and two members of Congress, as well as a number of nonprofits like the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence and Save the Children's Action Network, which is the political voice for kids, and he is currently the chief communications officer at the Recording Industry Association of America. But before I introduce you to Brendan Daly, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week, and it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my musical matcha lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my incredibly talented next guest is Brendan Daly, the Chief Communications Officer at the Recording Industry Association of America. That's the trade association for the recorded music industry. Brendan is a veteran communication strategist with over a quarter century of experience in managing messaging, promoting policy, and improving the image of organizations and policymakers. Most recently, Brendan served as Chief Spokesman and Senior Director of Communications at Save the Children's Action Network, the political advocacy arm of the global nonprofit Save the Children, where he advised on all aspects of strategy and policy. Brendan has also worked as an Executive Vice President and National Director for Corporate and Public Affairs at Ogilvy Public Relations, where he led a 25-person team advising clients like the Federal Reserve and Susan G. Komen for the Cure. Brendan started out his professional life right out of college working as a newspaper reporter in Waterbury, Connecticut and eventually moved from reporting on politics to getting involved working for a number of politicians, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi before she was House Speaker, and he spent almost 10 years working alongside her. If you want to learn more about how to break into communications and public relations, check out the show notes for this episode to see if Brendan's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Brendan, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am. I am. Thanks for having me, Andrea. Can't wait to get going. Okay, fantastic. Well, me too. And I have to ask you, do you work in an office where everybody has their own music playing or do you have music piped in all over the office? We have our own music playing, and I'm fortunate enough to be in an office where my predecessor had a really incredible speaker system installed, and so I had the benefit of that, and it's a fun place where you can have music on all day. So I have, uh, I'm a Spotify member, and I have my different you know, playlists on depending on the mood or the day, 
And then sometimes I just, if I'm going to write, I actually just have a quiet because I do need my quiet time still. Absolutely. So what's your favorite kind of music? Oh, I love all kinds, but I, I mean, I'm an old rock and roll guy too. So I love Bruce Springsteen and U2 and the Beatles. And But I have kids in college. They're, they're keeping me a little more up to date. So I've become a big fan of Lizzo and Billie Eilish and a number of other folks as well. So that's been fun for me. Nice. Nice. Well, before we dig into what you are doing now at RIAA or the Recording Industry of America, could you please share with our young listeners who RIAA's members are and what the organization's purpose and objectives are. Sure. Yes. So we basically have three members. We're a trade organization, as you mentioned. So our three members are Universal Music Group, Sony Music Entertainment, and Warner Music Group. So you you know all you've heard of those three enormous companies. They all have a film arm. They've got video games. They've got publishing. They've got any number of other parts of their business. But we deal with the music part of it. And each of them owns the record labels that you've heard of. So really, it's the record labels that we represent. So whether it's Republic Records or Capitol Records or Columbia Records or Island Records, Def Jam, any ones that you've heard of and, and many more that you haven't heard of are our members. So they those are all owned by one of those big three companies. And so we work with them really to promote the, the, the recorded music industry, but the music industry generally. And the reason we differentiate in recorded music, you know, it's separate from live performances. Our artists, obviously, you know, like Taylor Swift or Katy Perry, any number of the, the stars that we have, they have recorded music, but they also, of course, do live performances. But we're primarily concerned with the, the recorded performances. Okay, that makes a lot of sense now that I hear you explain it. As I was preparing for this interview, Brendan, I learned a number of things that I didn't know, one of which is that music is the biggest draw to tech platforms. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. it really is. I mean, it's kind of interesting. And, and you know, that, we can talk about that because we have a lot of issues with that. It's a good thing, but it's, it's got a double edge to it. Well, go ahead. What are what is the what are the double edges? Well, some of our platforms where we're doing really well on, we feel like we don't get the revenue. Our artists don't get paid for the work that they do because some of them will put up what we call copyright infringed material. So it's not licensed. And they'll they'll put it on YouTube, they'll put it on Twitter, they'll put it up on other social media. And then our artists don't get the revenue from that. And so our point is that the copyright protection is very important. Intellectual property is very important. And we need to protect that. And the laws that we have now are really kind of out of date and we need to update them. So I'm guessing that is one of the primary objectives of the government relations team in partnership with your team. Right. We want to hold the platforms accountable, but then we want to work with Congress and we do both of them. And more broadly, we want to really kind of maintain a public policy environment that that really helps the entire music ecosystem. And we call it an ecosystem because I alluded to earlier, there's a bunch of different elements of it. There's songwriters, there's performers, there's labels, there's managers, there's artists. There's any number of folks involved in the music industry. And really, I think we think it works best when we all work together and trying to pull in the same direction. Gotcha. I also learned as I was preparing for this interview that paid subscription streaming is driving tremendous growth in recorded U.S. music revenues. That's absolutely true. And it's actually the fourth straight year of double-digit growth in the music industry, which is a real turnaround. For your younger listeners, they may not know this, but the peak of the music industry in terms of revenue was in 1999. And it then we had Napster and sort of illegal downloading and any number of sort of what we call pirated music and people weren't paying for music and it just dropped like a stone until 2007, 2008, 2009 and then it kind of plateaued in the early 
tens. And then it started back up with streaming in 15, 16, and it started back up since then. It looks like a giant kind of flat U in terms of revenue. And we're still not actually in terms of absolute dollars where we were as an industry in 1999. And that's more than 20 years ago. So there's still a long way to go. But we do feel like it's been a remarkable turnaround. And not many industries have had this kind of digital transformation and been able to survive profitably. You mentioned earlier, I was a newspaper reporter. And sadly, a lot of newspapers, including a couple where I worked, they are not doing very well economically. The Washington Post, the New York Times, some of the really big ones are thankfully doing very, very well. But a lot of regional and smaller newspapers around the country have not recovered. And we're very fortunate in the music industry because of the foresighted leadership of the folks in the industry that we've been able to survive and not only survive, we're thriving. Well, I learned that from a press release that your team at RIAA put out last month, which is actually my segue (laughs) into your role as Chief Communications Officer at RIAA. You have been in this role since August of 2019. Can you give us a sense of some of your responsibilities in this position, Brendan? Well, really, everything that deals with both internal and external communications. So externally, that means dealing with reporters. So it's newspaper reporters, it's TV reporters, it's bloggers, it's podcasters, anything like that. And then also our social media team. I have people that work for me who do our social media. So primarily, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And so they produce the content, but often I'll approve it and talk it through with them. What do we want to put out? We also put out a blog, and you probably saw the blog actually that we put out with our recorded revenue. And that was on called medium.com. And some of your, I'm sure some of your folks look at medium for their news. So any number of ways we try to get the message out externally. And then internally, we have about 50 employees here at the RAAA. But we also want to communicate with the so-called big three, Universal, Sony, and Warner, and let those folks who are key policy and communications and legal and other folks that we deal with. I mean, those are enormous companies, but they have teams of people who care about policy and care about communications, and they're the ones that we deal with the most. So we want to communicate with them to let them know what we're doing. We want to get their input on what they think we should be doing. And we have regular calls with them. We have a yearly retreat where we get together in person. Most of them are based in New York and some in California, but they'll come to DC or we'll go to New York or I've been to LA as well to meet folks out there. So it's really basically trying to manage all of the communications aspect of the recorded industry. But we work closely with our folks in policy. And for lack of a better word, they really are lobbyists. People, unfortunately, in D.C. don't like that term lobbyists, but it's really not a bad word. It just means that we're trying to advocate on behalf of our industry. So we have folks here who go to Capitol Hill every day and talk to members of Congress in key committees that we have to deal with. And then sometimes we'll do communications with them. We'll do a a tweet about a meeting we had or we'll take a picture with them. Or sometimes we'll have our CEO do a video interview with their member of Congress and then they'll put it up on their channels and we'll put it up on ours. So depending on what it is, there's lots of different methods to get the message out. Actually, I'd like to talk with you about some of those methods and some of the products that your team would produce. I mentioned the press release that you put out last month, which summarized the revenue report for the U.S. recorded music industry in 2019. Can you give our listeners an overview, Brendan, of the range of written materials that your team would put out over the course of the year? Do you produce any reports, what would also be called white papers, or any other, you mentioned the graphic that was put to video, but what other kinds of materials is the team responsible for? 
Yes. I mean, the short answer is there's, there's lots of them. And so, yes, we do put out white papers. In fact, as part of our revenue report, in addition to the press release, we put out a three-page report itself with lots of charts and details on the increase in revenue. And some of that had graphs to sort of graphically show what I talked about in terms of the revenue back in 09 to now. But then it also had very detailed on what did it look like in 2019, but it, how did it look like 10 years ago and even 20 years ago in terms of what was the main source of revenue. And it used to be vinyl, it used to be CDs, it used to be digital downloads. Now it's streaming. And it's really 80% of the revenues we get are from streaming. And so we put out white papers on that. We work with outside folks sometimes to put out a research paper as well. So there was a report by a man named professor up at NYU named Larry Miller about the value of labels that goes into great detail about why the labels are important in this day and age. Because some people think, well, you know, you've got YouTube, you've got iPhones. I could record music myself and just put it up on Spotify or on uh, Apple Music and I don't need a label. And that's true. You could do that. And some people do that. But it's very hard to be successful. This is a statistic that I hear every day and I find hard to believe, even though I say it all the time, there's 40,000 new songs uploaded to streaming services every single day, every single day. So there's just an enormous number of songs that are out there and you need the label to really help you promote it. So artists want to be signed by labels because they then have a whole team of folks who can market them, who can help them even shape the music to make it be successful, but they can then market them. They have publicity folks who are really good at what they do. They have relationships with the streaming services. So there's a number of things that the labels can do to promote the artists. The other thing that labels really do well is protect them. And that working through us, frankly, we protect them in terms of copyright protection, in terms of intellectual property. So if someone is trying to basically post a song without it being licensed or authorized, we will then go to that platform and say, you need to take that down because that's unauthorized. And that's a way to protect their property and to make sure that they can make a living doing what they want to do, which is to to create music. As you said in the Espresso Shots interview, and check out show notes to see if that's already dropped, you at RIAA can't even use music from your members underneath videos that you're making because it's not licensed. So they're pretty right. And sometimes we, yeah, sometimes we will. We'll, we'll go through and we will get the permission and we will do it. It depends on, on what it is that we're trying to do. But if it's a quick hit that we just thought of that day, it's just easier to do it without that. Another thing that we do here at the RAAA, which is interesting, I think, is we're the ones who really produce the gold and platinum records for folks. We basically certify if an album is gold or platinum, gold meaning 500,000 units, platinum meaning a million. And if you're an emerging artist, that's a huge deal. And even if you're a star, they love it, you know. The big stars want to know that they've hit multi-plat. We'll give them a plaque. They'll take a photo of the artist, sometimes with the RAAA, sometimes with their manager, sometimes with someone else. And then they'll put it on their social media. Then we can retweet it on our social media because they really want to celebrate the fact. It's basically kind of the gold standard. Like you've achieved the success because, as I mentioned earlier, there are 40,000 songs uploaded every day to streaming services. And last year, we certified 200 artists for having gold or platinum records. So it's very hard to do. And if you get that level of achievement, you want to recognize it. No doubt. So going back to the various kinds of written materials that your team might put out over the course of a year, could you just give us the laundry list? I I know I'm sure you're writing op-eds and you mentioned the third-party validator report which is another way of of categorizing that report that the professor up in New York wrote recently. Are there any other written products that you're churning out? 
Well, yeah, and I mentioned the report that we did on the revenue, but then we also will do other reports looking at different states of the industry. So, yeah, we put out reports, we do op-eds, we do blogs, we do press releases. Sometimes we'll just do a, a quote that will get the lawmakers doing something that we're pleased with. We'll do a quote and, and put it in their press release because they want a third-party validator, which is us, to the work that they're doing. And then, as I said, social media as well. It's kind of our bread and butter every day. So we're out there tweeting several times a day, several Facebook posts and Instagram. And Instagram, as you know, is much more of a visual medium. So we want to get a good picture. So we want to have an artist if we can. We want to do something that'll grab your attention. And then there's usually a very short write-up with that to explain what it is. So we are more, I guess the word would be selective in terms of what we post on Instagram because we know that it has to have a good visual with it. Absolutely. So strategy has got to be a huge part of what you do as the chief communications officer at RIAA. Can you take us into a typical day or a typical week on the job, Brendan, and give us a sense of the kind of strategic thinking that you're chewing over and working on? Sure. Yeah. So a typical day, you know, we end up having a, a number of meetings here with our senior staff, or sometimes just with the communications team, or as I mentioned, sometimes with the visa companies themselves. And we strategize. We think about, okay, what is it that we want to say? How do we want to say it? And when? So, and what's our goal here? I mean, you always have to keep that in mind, and whether it's politics or the music industry or anywhere else, what is your ultimate goal? And sometimes that's, we want to pass legislation. There was a bill that the RAAA and, and a number of other music organizations as well as the music companies and members of Congress rallied around about a year and a half ago called the Music Modernization Act. And it passed in 2018, finally, in the fall of 2018. I was really not specifically involved in that because that was before I got here. But that was a big, big legislative push. And it kind of modernized a number of things in the for the industry that was we thought was very helpful. Now there's smaller pieces of legislation that we still have that we're concerned about and that we want to work on. So sometimes it's a legislative push. Sometimes it's we want to, as you saw the other day, do the revenue report that things are doing well. And even there in the revenue report, as you know, you've heard me say, we also reference the fact that we've had challenges in the past and we're going to have them in the future. And as well as things are going now, we don't really know for sure what's going to happen. We think streaming is going to keep growing and growing, but at some point there may be challenged by other things. And so we always have to kind of look around the corner and what is it that could pop up that could be a problem. And then how do we hold these platforms accountable? That's a, always a goal for us because we work with them. We really appreciate them. But there are times where we feel like they could be doing more to prevent illegal content from going on their sites. Okay. So you spend part of every day. I'm sure, in meetings and on the phone. What else do you do? Does it take you out of the office? Are you traveling to meet with music executives? You mentioned some of them are in New York, others are in California. And why would you need to go to meet with them? Well, because it's just like in anything, it's always good to have a relationship in person and to really meet with them in person and have a discussion and more than just a quick 10-minute call or a 20-minute call. We want to actually have a conversation and get to know them and what are they concerned about? What can we do to help them? How can they help us? And it just builds a relationship. So yeah, I go to New York probably once a month, I'd say, and it's an easy train ride up. Just get on the uh, the Amtrak and go right up the I-95 corridor on the train, actually. And you can do work while you're on the train. 
California is a little bit farther. I was fortunate to be able to go to the Grammys at the end of January. And so a number of us went out from here in D.C. and we built in time to have meetings with, for me, it was reporters who were based on the West Coast, but also then music executives who are out there. And then we have a board of directors who are comprised of label executives, folks from the parent companies, as well as some RAAA people. And so we had our board meeting out there and I presented our communications kind of accomplishments from the previous year, as well as the plan for 2020. Okay. And in terms of the strategic piece of your job, do you create an annual kind of communication strategy with various goals and benchmarks for each quarter and then sort of measure your impact, your progress at the end of the year? How do you like to operate? Yeah, that's, I'm just nodding my head while you're talking, as I'm sure you can see. But that's right. Yeah, there's a communications <laughs> strategy and plan every year. And sometimes you have to adapt it and change it either quarter through the year, or halfway through the year, because things have changed. But there are a number of things we know are going to happen at certain times of year. And then we try to put events up that we do as well to try to create news because the the biggest difference from for me in this job, or even when I was you know working at Ogilvy, which you mentioned, we are trying to, in terms of getting press, we have to go on the offense and say to the reporters, here's an interesting piece of news. I think you'd want to cover it. Whereas when I work for Speaker Pelosi, reporters are covering her every day, and there's dozens and dozens of them. And so you're like a hockey goalie fending off all these pucks coming at you furiously. Whereas when you're on this side, you're like raising her, hey, don't forget about me. This is interesting. You should write about this. So it's a, it's a different mindset. So we put in events and things like that to try to get coverage and because we want to celebrate what it is that we're doing. So we have an event every fall called RAAA Honors, where we honor a policymaker of the year from Congress, an executive of the year from one of our record labels, and then an artist of the year. And we actually had our first one last September and it was extremely successful. So we want to do it every year now. We have it a day where we bring women executives from our member companies and the labels to Capitol Hill to meet with their members of Congress. And it just works out really well. As I mentioned, our public policy folks here at the RAA are up there every day on Capitol Hill. But it really helps when you have someone who actually their job is as a record label president or an A&R, which is a person who develops new talent or any number of other jobs that they may have, describing what it is that they do to the members and their staff. It really brings it home. This is what it is that we're talking about. This is why this legislation is important, because it affects me in, in this specific way. And it just brings it home. So I can share with you, Brendan, because after I left CNN, I actually went into the same world that you're in now and did communications for a cause-oriented public affairs firm and had to learn a lingo that I had no clue about until that point called earned media. And that's yes. what Brendan is talking about. You are earning it by the sweat of your brow. At least that was certainly the feeling I had when you're pitching media to try to get them to cover your event or whatever, to write about the press release that you've just put out or the report. And what Brendan was just talking about there, and I'm sure this is part of his communication strategy and his thinking is, what hooks can we use? What celebrities, and you, my goodness, I'm sure have a whole stable of celebrities that you can tap into because they often bring the cameras. They often bring the social media influencers who RIAA is going to want to cover your your messaging that you're putting out. That's exactly right. And, you know, earned media is the hardest because it's always a, you just never know. It's always a crapshoot. I hate to use that phrase or gamble. I guess it'd be a better phrase. You don't know. Even if you think you have a celebrity and it's a big day, say we're doing it in Nashville today and we had some great country singers. Well, 
the tornado happened and that'll just wipe that whole thing right off the, the face of the map and you know let's hope that everyone down there recovers soon and and it's you know it's just a horrible tragedy but so you just never know in terms of earned media there is a thing and i'll give you another lingo andrew and i'm not sure if you've heard this term but and not everyone uses it but it's sort of an acronym peso p-e-s-o and those are the different kinds of media so p stands for paid and that means advertising and we've seen the presidential race with our friend Mike Bloomberg. He spent a lot of money on advertising that everyone in America, I think, has seen his ads because he has millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars to spend. Most people and organizations don't have that. We certainly don't have anywhere near that. But you can do selective ads here and there. You know, if we're trying to push a legislative piece of Capitol Hill, we may do an ad in Politico or The Hill, which are newspapers on Capitol Hill that the members and staff read. We won't do it all over the country. So the P of peso is paid. E, as we just talked about, is earned. And that's where reporters, either whether print or radio or TV, will write a story because there's a news hook and there's a news angle about whatever the issue of the day is. S is social. And we've talked a little bit about that already, but that's social media. So that's whether that's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can control it to a certain degree, but then also people on other channels will write about you. And sometimes you want to amplify what they're doing if it's positive. If it's negative, you want to try to minimize the damage. And then the last is O, and that's for own media. And that's for your website or your blogs that you can control. So you can put materials on your website and drive people to that. As I noticed you did at the beginning of every podcast, you say, sign up on my website. And you want people to go there to sign up for your Java journals, but then you also want people to kind of click around and see what else is going on and, and become interested in, in all that you have. So we try to do the RAAA. One of the ways we do that is our Gold Platinum program. And that's our most popular site on the website. People that can go up and look and see, okay, did my artist get a gold record or do they get a platinum record or who's got the most gold albums of all time who's got the most records of all time who's sold the most there's any number of ways you can slice it and people check that out all the time because there's a great interest among fans in finding out that information fantastic and no i had not heard of pesos so there you go now you learn something new every day even all right we can learn something (laughs) (laughs) so as i said in the introduction you have spent most of your career working in public service, in politics and government, either for politicians or different presidential administrations. You were an assistant trade representative for public affairs. You were also working for the Department of Energy as a chief spokesperson there. What made that such a compelling career path. And can you take us inside what it was like working for someone like Speaker Nancy Pelosi as you did for nine years? Well, the first part of the question, you know, what made a great career? I think just as I said, there's opportunities that present themselves and I decided to take advantage of them. And then I really tried to do the best I could at each stop. And some were more successful than others. I mean, I feel like we can talk about this later. If you want to talk about disappointments, was the Department of Energy. I felt like that was a huge disappointment on my part. And anyway, we can get into that. But for working for the speaker was really great because she is who she appears to be. She is just in private the way she is in public. She's very outspoken. She's determined. She's really strong. But she's also genuine and kind and I just actually read a really lovely profile of her today on Variety, that, which is the uh, one of our publications that we care about in the trade press. It's more focused on the movie industry, but they cover music quite a bit as well. So we get that. And she's on the cover there. And it talks about how when she does a fundraiser, she often goes to talk to the caterers and their staff. And she always does that with an interview. When I, I was there, as you said, almost 10 years. And she did many, many interviews with TV people. And she always went to the cameraman and the sound guy and the lights guy or woman or the person and say, hi, I'm, I'm Nancy Pelosi. 
tell me what's your name and do you like your job and what do you think about it? Just chat them up a little bit. And it wasn't for any political gain. That's just who she is. She wants to know about them. She is very genuine and is just really someone who, when you work for someone for a long time and you see all their greatness, you see their flaws too. But despite all that, she is someone I would you know work again for her in a heartbeat. She's a wonderful person who is really, really committed to public service and to doing the right thing. Well, you were quoted. I mean, you've had any number of quotes talking about your time as Speaker Pelosi's spokesperson, both when she was minority leader and then as speaker the first time. And you said that it is super important for you to get close to your principal and to spend a lot of time with them, hearing them speak. So how does that make you a better spokesperson, Brendan? Because then you really know what they're thinking and the way they are, are talking even. When I was working for her, I had reporters call me every day, multiple times a day, many of them. And they wanted to know, what does she think about this? What does she think about that? At the beginning, I have to ask her, what do you think about this? But after a while, I was in so many interviews and I just spent hours and hours every day with her that I knew what she thought. And I didn't have to check with her. I could just say it. And that made me a very credible source to the reporters and, you know, frankly, valuable to them and to the point where several news organizations who I won't mention because I may get them in trouble, but they normally have a two source rule. Anything on any story, you need to have two different people tell you the same thing before they go with it. I was an exception for many organizations because they knew if I said it, I had the imprimatur of the speaker. I knew what I was talking about and I wasn't going to make it up. And the other thing, which I don't know if I was quoted on, Andrew, but is that as a spokesperson, the only thing you have is your credibility and you have to tell the truth. And of course, you will spin it and try to make things appear as positive as possible. But there's a line that you can't cross. And I feel like today, unfortunately, with the president and his team right now, they cross that line every single day. And it's going to be hard to put that genie back in the bottle for whoever follows him. Because you look at what Sean Spicer did his very first day and got into the whole argument with the press about the size of the crowd. And people could see with their own eyes that what, what he was saying was not true. And I like Sean, and I worked with him for a long time before he worked for the president. And I know that was a difficult situation for him because he felt he had to please one person. But it's just, you know, you need your credibility, and that's really all you have. And you have to make sure you maintain that, in my opinion, because otherwise you can't be effective. Well, I have to say, as a former journalist who had the opportunity to interview Speaker Pelosi and to work with you, Brendan, I can not only attest to the credibility and the honesty that you and she both put forth in my dealings with you, but also to Speaker Pelosi's message discipline. And for those who may not know what I mean by that, it means she stuck to her talking points. And as a journalist who was trying to extract news from the speaker or news from Brendan as her spokesperson, I confess I didn't necessarily appreciate that fact that I couldn't move her or you off the script. And that's hard. And I, I get that. And, and reporters want to get you to talk off the record and off the cuff. And then when you do that, they criticize you. Hey, you're not on message. So you, you get hammered either way. And you know, But you can do it in such a way that you're not robotic about it. That we go back to the, the thing we talked about earlier about authenticity. That you have to do it in such a way that it's, it's who you are and you're saying it in your own words and you're not forcing it. And back to the question about being close to her, there were times where she used phrases that weren't necessarily my phrases, but I started adopting them because I was working for her. And it's easy to forget when you're getting people like you or at George Stephanopoulos and Jonathan Carl, and people are really smart and very talented and very well spoken, calling me a lot, asking me what's going on, what's happening here. You could mistake that and say, oh, they want to know my opinion and I could just speak off the cuff on anything. It's like, no, they want to know really what is she thinking? 
and what is, what does she want to do? And you have to remember that you're speaking on behalf of someone else, not yourself. And there is just the tendency among some folks who are spokespeople, if they get out of in troubles, when they start letting their ego get in the way, you've got to remember who you work for and what it is that you're there to do. Well, during your 30-year-plus career, Brendan, you have zigged and zagged from journalism, where you started, to politics, to government, to nonprofit advocacy, and then working for a large public relations firm for Ogilvy, where you were an executive vice president and national director for corporate and public affairs. You actually stayed at Ogilvy for a long time. You were there for 13 years. So I'm guessing that you must have liked it. Well, it wasn't that long, but it was it was long. It was yeah, I did like it. And it was a good job. I liked it. I loved the people who I worked with. I liked the clients. They were interesting and the challenges they had were interesting. But I kind of felt like the pull of public service was there. And then I went to the Department of Energy and that just for me was not a great fit. And you know, I loved the secretary there. He was a super smart guy, really interesting and funny and smart and wonderful. But I just didn't really fit in well with the rest of the team there. And it just wasn't a good fit for me. And so unfortunately, I left there in less than a year. And that was a big disappointment to me because I really thought I would want to stay there. I thought it'd be a return to government. I'd really wanted to do it. And it, it just didn't work out. And I was fortunate enough to then find the job with Save the Children Action Network, which was a great job. And I loved that. And it was working on behalf of kids. And as you mentioned in your intro, it's the political arm of Save the Children. So it deals with politics, which is a real love for me, obviously. And so we were trying to get increased funding for early education for children. So whether that's Head Start or preschool or childcare, all of that is so important. The zero to three and zero to five age of kids is the most important period of their life. And unfortunately, we as a country don't do nearly enough for them. And the funding is just way, way below what it should be. So we were advocating to try to get more funding at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level, wherever we could to try to increase opportunities, particularly for poor kids, so they would get an education and really not fall behind. If they don't get that early education, they're already behind. They're they're more well-off peers. And it's really, really hard for these kids to catch up. You see what I mean, folks? How Brendan is always on message, even when he's not working for them anymore. <laughs> well, it's true, though. I mean, that is really true. And it was a great job. It was a really I great love job. It. I, I'm teasing you. And as somebody who worked for another international NGO for Mercy Corps, I totally get why you would be so passionate about the mission of Save the Children. I want to flash back very quickly, Brendan, to when you were in college. You went to Duke University and you majored in political science. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I didn't. I mean, I had the idea that I would probably go into reporting because my dad was, my mom was, my grandfather was, my grandmother was. It was in the family. At that point, I had older brother as a TV reporter. And I worked on the college newspaper there called The Chronicle, which then, as now, I, I'm proud to say, is an award-winning student newspaper. It's really, really quite good. And back then, of course, it was just a print edition, but it came out every day, five days a week. And we didn't have any help from the school. It was just student run. And so I started as a reporter. I worked my way up to editor, the news editor. I wasn't ever the top editor because then actually the top editor literally takes no classes and that's all they do because it's such a demanding job. Wow. Um, but now they, they have a print edition, but they, of course, are online and they have a digital edition. They send out an electronic newsletter, which I get every day. And it's still really, really quite good. So it's a great training job. And a lot of the people who I worked with there went on to jobs that they're now at the New York Times or at the Washington Post. They're all doing really well. Several have won Pulitzer's. I mean, it's a really, it's a great place to, to, to learn your craft. So that's what I decided to do after, as I was graduating, I applied for internships 
and got an internship in Waterbury, Connecticut for a paper called the Waterbury Republican. That was a morning paper. And the afternoon paper was the Waterbury American. So at that time, it was the Republican American. And it was just a three-month job, really, from the end of May to the end of the summer, end of August. That was all that was guaranteed. And I was hopeful if it went well, I would get hired, but I had no guarantees of that. And then I think it was in August when my time was coming near an end that they said, hey, we have an open. Do you want to do you want to work here full time? And I said, yes. So I did that for about three years and I covered local politics. I covered crime. I covered the school board. When you work at a small paper, you cover everything and you learn to write two or three stories every single day. And then I went to a paper called The Patriot Ledger up in Quincy, Mass., which is just outside of Boston. And I did that for six years. And again, I wrote several stories every single day. And that helped, I think, in terms of my career that I know how to write quickly. I know what news is. I know how to frame it in such a way that you get the important thing up first and then you can get the details. To me, it was just great training and I love doing it. And then I had a chance to come to the political side and work for a congressman named Gary Studs. And in that job, I didn't even apply for that. I'd covered his election in 1992, and he had a difficult race for the first time in a long time because he had been redistricted to cover Quincy. So it was in our, our area, and he had been mostly on Cape Cod before. And so after the election, his staff approached me and said, hey, would you like to work for him? And I told him no. <laughs> and then I went traveling, and I was actually in Asia when he called me, and I had a job interview from Kathmandu, Nepal. And I took the job over the phone, in Kathmandu. And then I came back and worked for him. That is a memorable trip. <laughs> it really is. It well, is. So two final T4C questions. You've already mentioned a low point for you in your professional life when you were the director of public affairs at the Department of Energy. Is that a time when you really, would you say, struggled and worried about the next step in your career? And were there any lessons that you learned going through that process? Yes. I mean, certainly I struggled. I struggled both personally and professionally. It's really the only job that I didn't really love. And I, you know, I've been fortunate to love every other job I've had. And that one I just didn't. And so I probably didn't perform on my best either. So I, I kind of knew that. And I thought I need to move on from here. And I think the lesson was to really kind of know what you're getting into before you get into it. And I, I kind of made some assumptions about what it would be like when it, it wasn't that way. I did struggle. I mean, I, I just, I'm struggling not talking about it because I'm not proud of that because I feel like other, every other job, I've really been very successful. Now one just didn't work out. From my own standpoint, having had ups and downs, I think that the downs are often opportunities to reset and to learn lessons. And oftentimes, even the crappy experiences that you have bring important lessons into your life that make you an even better and more resilient professional. I think that's true. And it also makes you, at least I hope, for my case, more empathetic when other people are struggling, that you don't judge them so quickly, that people can be going through something either personally or professionally, and that you shouldn't be quick to judge them and try to figure out, how can I help? And that was a, a big lesson I learned in that, the people who helped me when I needed it and those who I felt would help me who didn't. I also remember that. So yeah, no, that's exactly right. And life is not a straight line. I tell my kids that all the time, that you're not going to have success every day. You know, if they fail a test, and they, you know, they actually are very, very good students. They don't really fail tests, but in their mind, they do if they get a, a B. And I'm like, that's okay. That is okay. And you're not going to always be successful. That's just not the way life works. It just doesn't. And you have to be able to get back up after you get knocked down. A hundred percent, Brendan. Oh, well, thank you. I've got, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Sometimes I tease my kids like, I can't keep a job. I always move on to something else. Oh, but my partly it's, that, you know, it's like, I do want to try new things. And yes! like that's one thing. Yes! And I tell them, my kids, is that this has been a challenge for me to learn the music industry in my 50s. This is not 
natural to me, but because I really love music, A, and then B, the, the stuff about intellectual property and copyright protection is actually goes back to my USTR days. And so luckily I have that as a background. That's actually been really helpful to me. And that it's just, it's good to have a new challenge in life. You, you want to wake up every day like, okay, it's a new challenge. And that's really been fun for me. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to Duke and do it all over again, but based on the immense wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Well, it's the advice I give my kids, and I don't know if you're going to like it, but it's really to not be so serious and not to think everything is life or death. I felt like I was really intense as a student and really wanted to get A's on everything. And, you know, in the end, nobody cares about that. Like, unless you're going to graduate school, employers don't say, what's your GPA? They want to know, did you do well? Did you like it? What kind of courses you took? But I don't know, try new things, I would say, and just be a little bit more relaxed about it. I'm glad that I spent so much time at the school paper because that ended up being really helpful to me in my career. And it was also just really fun. And I, I really liked doing it. I mean, I got a lot of experiences where I could write about the different news aspects of the university, but also some sports and some fun things that I wouldn't have done otherwise. But yeah, I would say just to, to be open to lots of new things. And so you, you never know what's going to interest you, but just be open to it. Brendan, you may be reading from my talking points. So far from my not liking it, it is exactly what I tell my 16-year-old son and what I tell young people all the time. Study what interests them. Don't worry. Don't stress so much about the grades. Think about what are you learning and find out where your interests lie and head in that direction. And even if you do that, and look at me and look at others, they change your career. You, you, you were in news and you, you, know, you went for a PR firm, I think you said, and then you were at Mercy Corps and now you're doing podcasts. So people can change and do different things. Even if you start a job and you like it, that doesn't mean you're going to do it the rest of your life. You may do it for five years, 10 years. You're going to do something else after that. So be open to new opportunities and new things. Let me test this message on you because you're the pro here. The way that I try to describe this now to my young listeners is that rather than thinking of their major as the tiny house that they're going to be forced to live in for the rest of their lives, think of it as the foundation of a professional skyscraper that they're going to be building over the course of their lives with each new job and each new career, adding a new floor in that skyscraper. I love it. I love it. I've never heard of described that way, but I'm going to steal that. And that's always the ultimate form of flattery when you steal something from someone else. <laughs> well, I take it as a compliment. And I also very much appreciate the stamp of approval from Brendan Daly. Brendan, I want to thank you so much for making the Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. This was so fascinating. You have had such an incredible career and I know will continue to evolve as your interests evolve and your priorities evolve as they have for all of us. And I wish you nothing but continued success. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. This was a pleasure for me. So thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.